This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It almost seemed like in the fall of 1989, there was some malignancy in the air. Just strange things started to happen. It was a weird time. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Russell Maines. I go by Russ, and I'm a lawyer in Ithaca, New York. Russell Maines was a reporter for the Ithaca Journal in 1989, and he was there during one of the most notorious murders in upstate New York. If you've heard my first season of Tenfold More Wicked, you might remember the village of Dryden. That's where killer Edward Ruloff lived with his wife's family in the 1840s before he murdered four of them. More than a century later, Dryden suffered through a series of killings that made national news and earned itself the nickname the village of the damned, and it all began with the execution of an entire family. I had been working freelance for a couple of weekly papers, and then I got my big break to be the police reporter at the Ithaca Journal, and we began to get a lot of higher than usual number of assaults, what you would classify as violent crime, but nothing nationally newsworthy that fall. The first major event, winter of 89, was the Harris family murder in Dryden, which is a 
bedroom community of the center of it is about 10 miles from Ithaca. What we know happened was that there was a leave it to beaver kind of family of four. The mother and father were Tony Harris, Warren Harris, also known as Tony. He was 39 years old and he was the executive and executive at a electronics manufacturing company in Ithaca. His wife was Dolores Harris. She was known as Dodie. She was 41 years old. And they had two children, Shelby, who was 15, and Mark with a C, who was 11. On the morning of December 23rd, 1989, a neighbor heard the Harris's fire alarm. It turned out to be a fire alarm going off. It was obviously one of the shortest days of the year. There had been a heavy snowfall over the night, which is a significant fact. The neighbor, uh, Mr. Regan, was woken before seven o'clock by a very loud alarm. And he didn't know what to make of it, didn't know what it was. And he called the state police in Dryden. State police barracks are several miles away, and the roads were very poor because of the snowfall. Trooper John Benno was dispatched to the Harris house. As he was traveling there, his day was just starting to break. When Benno arrived, he saw the house. The house had a semicircular, a U-shaped driveway in front of it. So with two ends of the driveway addressing the road. As he pulled up, he realized that there were a set of tire tracks not going through the driveway, but going straight from the garage across the yard. So literally, whoever went out of the garage apparently went straight across the lawn. And he was believing that it was probably a burglary. That was the most logical explanation. Because even though there was this uptick in crime, that's not what Dryden was known for. Quiet, rural community at the time still probably known more as a farming community. By the time Trooper Benno arrives, it's starting to get light. The alarm has stopped. He walks around the perimeter of the house, yelling, state police, anybody here? He doesn't hear anything. He then goes to the back of the house to a set of French doors, which he opens, and then he sees there's smoke. The house is full of smoke. So he opens the doors, he opens a window at the front of the house to get some cross ventilation, get the smoke cleared out. At that point, he radios for help, calls the dispatcher, who then sends other troopers out, and then he says they need fire people to come to. There's a living room, he can see a Christmas tree, he makes his way up the stairs, he goes to a room at the top of the stairs, which appears to be a master bedroom. He's overtaken by the smoke, he has to go back outside. At some point, another trooper by the name of Michael Simmons arrives, and another trooper by the name of Scott Hendershot also arrived. I believe it was Benno on one of those trips up to the top of the stairs to that bedroom sees a charred leg, and he realizes that he's got a big problem. Notifies the troopers, and he says, okay, there's been a homicide or a domestic or something bad has happened here. Why did he not assume that this was just some object that had been consumed by the fire? You know what I mean? Why jump to homicide? Fair question. I think at some point during the sequence, he saw a gas can, a rectangular gas can on the floor of the living room, and either he or one of his colleagues smelled gasoline. But now you have more than one point of origin of the fire. There's no been no fire set in the downstairs. They could smell the gasoline on the, on the floor and the carpet of the downstairs. Obviously, a point of origin was the master bedroom, 
firefighters also go down to the end of the hall. There's a bedroom there, and there's obviously been a fire set in that room too. So firefighters go into the room, break the window, and shoot a hose out. So the hose, basically that force draws the smoke out. Literally, at some point, one of the firefighters climbs over what he thought was duffel bags, and it turns out to be three bodies. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, what we know about fire is it erases so much of the evidence. You've got, like, the firefighters coming in and spraying water everywhere. That's true. However, even given the destruction, there was a lot of evidence still intact. Eventually, they determined that the daughter, Shelby, had been sexually assaulted and killed in the master bedroom. Between the master bedroom and Mark's bedroom, there was a dead dog on the floor outside the bedroom. Shelby's clothes were in the bathroom next to where the dog was. Shelby's body was found next to a bed in the master bedroom. The three bodies of the other three family members were bound with wire coat hangers, bound very tightly behind their backs at the elbows and at the wrists. All the victims had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. No shell casings were found. They looked throughout the house. They even cleaned out the septic tank. So this is someone who's smart. Somebody who's smart. Well, not smart enough. If he opened the bedroom doors after he set the fire, he probably would have been a lot more successful. And they learned that somebody had used Mr. and Mrs. Harris's credit cards at a mall, and one mall in Auburn, which is about a 40-minute drive and another mall in Syracuse, which is about an hour drive. They went and got composite pictures. This was before video cameras were in all the stores. So they had to go and talk to clerks and generate composites of the people who were seen using the cards. So more than one? More than one person. Uh, They didn't know if it was three people or two people based upon the descriptions they were getting. They knew that it was at least a black female, 50s or 60s, and a black male, 20s or 30s. So now we have four bodies. I got four bodies. You have a teenage girl, you've got a young boy, and then you've got the parents. Yes. As a journalist, is it difficult to cover cases like that about children? It would be harder now as a father for me to do it than it was. I had some advantage in that I was a punk. I was, you know, early 20s and did not have the sensitivities that a parent would have. I mean, I thought of Shelby Harris, who was 15 years old, but I thought of her as being more my contemporary than uh, the parents, right? I was closer in age to the kids. So what do we know about the sequence of events from that night? I guess I'll tell it from my perspective. I mean, what I remember, Friday afternoon, Harris's were taken by surprise at their home toward the end of the school and work day, four or five o'clock. It was an extraordinarily cold day. It was snowing hard. I was in a bad apartment and I was freezing to death. I I went to the Sears and bought myself a space heater and got home and literally watched on CNN the Romanian uprising, the bunch of people storming the palace, the Ceausescu Palace in Romania. So I'm hanging out. I'm living with my girlfriend. I get up. The next morning, I go somewhere to do something. I come home and there's a message on my machine, no cell phones at that time, from my editor at the newspaper saying that a family was found dead in their home. When I heard that message, I thought, oh, carbon monoxide from a furnace. They were in their sleep and it killed them. But that's not uncommon for this area. Not terribly uncommon. So you didn't jump to murder. I did not jump to murder. Just like 9-11, I heard a plane had crashed into a tower and I thought, boy, you know, because I'm not, we're not 
too far from New York City. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. I thought, gee, that's odd. How'd that happen? And then a few minutes later, it became very clear what had happened. So it was that sort of thing. Your mind seems to go to the more innocuous explanation. But once we knew what it was, yes, people were terrified. People were frightened. They were shocked. It was the 23rd when the bodies were found. It was Monday, Christmas Day, when the cops first recorded the stuff about the bicyclists. Police were releasing information very piecemeal and keeping some of it to themselves. There was no description given of the race of the cyclist. The person was using a parka. You know, I thought that was cockamamie uh, and didn't give it. I thought, boy, these guys are really grasping at straws. Who are we looking at? Who are the suspects? What do we know about them? A little after Christmas Day, a few days after the composites, sketches of the people are released. They set up a reward of, I think, $25,000 for information leading to the arrest or conviction of the people involved. They, of course, say something like, oh, these are people we want to talk to. We don't know if they're suspects, something like that. Persons of interest. Persons of interest. You're getting phone calls all over the place. Is Dryden a diverse town at this point? No. Not at all. Well, I don't know what the numbers were, but it was very predominantly a white community. The imaginations go crazy when this stuff happens. There are all kinds of theories. Tony Harris was in the witness protection program. He testified in trial and he relocated here. Well, that's a foolish theory because Tony Harris grew up in Syracuse and his parents' names were Harris, so there's no validity to that until I find out something years later that all these rumors like that one, usually there's something, it started out true and then it's like a game of telephone. And sometimes you can go back and find the root of this bad information. Sometimes you can't. What were some of the other rumors? Oh, there were rumors that it was a satanic cult. Somebody pointed out that the guy who wrote Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, his name was Harris. There's a murder described in there, and there was a lot of similarities that people thought. So, oh, a guy named Harris wrote this book, and maybe it was some sort of copycat thing. What is that? Why do people do that in a small town? Or do they do it everywhere? They do it everywhere. There's a vacuum of information, and they want to fill it. I mean, all this stuff about, you know, leave Harvey Oswald. People don't want to believe that some goofball bought a $12 bolt-action rifle and was able to stand at at a book depository God knows how many yards away from President Kennedy's vehicle and was able to pick him off. There, to me, is nothing more terrifying than a random act of violence. Random victims just picked for no good reason. And so maybe that, you think that's like the reaction? People want to cover up their fear with a rational explanation. So among all of these calls, they started getting, there was a pattern of probably three or four people said, gee, you should really look at Shirley King. That woman looks like Shirley King. And they started looking more and started coming to the conclusion that probably it was Shirley using Mrs. Harris's credit card on the night of the 23rd. That was the night they found the bodies, right? On the bodies in the morning of the 23rd and then in the afternoon of the 23rd, Shirley used the credit card. She came home from the mall, turned on the 11 o'clock news and saw that a family had been murdered whose name was Harris. And then she said, oh boy, now I'm in deep. 
she told me this, and I believe it to be true, that she did not know about the murders when she used the car. Who is she? You know, is she elderly? What is she like? So Shirley King at the time was 54 years old. She had been a single mother raising two children, Michael and Gabrielle. She was in a bad, abusive relationship with uh, somebody. The relationship ended very young. The father of uh, Michael and Gabrielle eventually actually ended up living up here. Shirley just sort of wanted to get away and come up to New York State. So Shirley had worked for the Treasury Department in the 60s as a, I think, a secretary. Because she worked for the Treasury Department, they had her fingerprints on a fingerprint card, which becomes relevant later on. Michael was, at the time of the murders, 33 years old, was described by many people as very highly intelligent. One of these young guys that Things went not his way as he got older and just turned mad, just pissed, angry. Got into trouble, had an armed robbery, wrapped down in New York City, small crimes. And then he decided to straighten himself out and went to a community college and took computer programming classes and did very well. He had been in the Marines. He'd been, a, I was told, a sharpshooter. I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but he, he was very proficient with weapons. He tried to straighten himself out, and then he couldn't get a job. You know, bad economy in the 70s and just black guy with a history, and people didn't want to hire him. And he just that seemed to set him off and just get him sort of more pissed. And at this point, all we know is that this family has been using the credit card of a family who was just killed in Dryden. That's right. So we don't know. They could have found the credit card on the ground. I mean, we don't know definitively if they were involved with the Harris's murder. But then the police become alarmed, right? They do become alarmed. I mean, obviously their theory is, okay, you know, these two were involved. At least, at least the guy was. Shirley's used the card. Michael's used the card. They start looking at connections between Michael or Shirley and the Harris family. Now, Shirley took a lot of part-time jobs as a cleaning lady. For a while, she had worked for a young man, a developer by the name of Doug Sutton. They got handwriting samples from Doug Sutton because she'd been keeping the books. They compared the handwriting in books to the handwriting on the signature. You know, back then, it was all credit cards was you sign a piece of paper with a carbon on it. So they had all that and matched her known handwriting samples to the credit card samples. And that was one of the basis that they used to get the search warrant. The morning of the 23rd, David Harding, who's a state police investigator and his colleague, Rob Lashansky, are going through the house looking for physical evidence. And there's a lot of focus on the gas can. And they determined fairly early on that the gas can belonged to the Harris family. Harding set up a tent. They had a technique that they used at the time to basically do a fumes. They they put a they put an object in a in a tent and they they do these fumes that's like it's like super glue in a vapor form. So it hardens everything on the surface of the object so they don't get wiped away. So they're looking for fingerprints on this gas can. And Harding is trying as he might and they're processing this thing and they can't come up with any identifiable prints. So they disregard the can as having much significance. So weeks later, after Shirley King's name emerges as a suspect, lo and behold, 
David Harding comes forward and says, hey, Shirley King's prints match the prints on the gas can. But they didn't have usable prints. Yeah, so his, his bosses, the senior investigator David McGillicutt and Carl Chandler. Carl Chandler says, wait a minute, time out. I thought you didn't have any usable prints. Oh, no. On one side of the can, there weren't usable prints. But on the other side, there were these potentially usable prints. He sort of tries to backfill the story to justify this magical appearance of these prints. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So if I'm an investigator now at this point, I've got a mother in her 50s with a background in cleaning houses very thoroughly whose prints are on a gas can that has been connected to the murder of a family. And her son, Michael, is also maybe connected. And there's a sexual assault. So obviously some man is there. So where do they go now? The theory made no sense in 1990, and it makes no sense now. Theory is, Michael King arrived at the house around four-ish, took the family by surprise, got control of the mother and the two children, ambushed the father when he arrived home at about six, got everybody under control, went through the Christmas presents, and, you know, committed these atrocities. No cell phones. Now, remember, he had no vehicle. Got there by a bicycle. He went in the Harris's van. He drove about five miles to a mall where there was a bowling alley and a payphone. He called his mother to come help him clean up a crime scene where he just raped a girl. His mother drove through a snowstorm about eight miles from their home to this Payphone. They drove together back to the house in the snowstorm, cleaned the house, set the fires. When the alarm went off, ran to the van, got in the van, didn't have time to light the downstairs fire. They dumped gasoline there because they were taken by surprise by the alarm. Got in the van, put the bicycle in the van, drove to the mall where the phone was. Now, the stupidity of this theory is 
multifaceted. First of all, Michael King was sophisticated. He knew how to, you know, the guy literally manufactured guns. He knew how things work and fit together. So what is her defense? Why did she think this was okay to use this woman's card? She didn't think it was okay, and she had no criminal record. No criminal record, 55-year-old woman. Her son just hands her a credit card and says, okay, mom, go buy whatever you want. She says, gee, you know, it's Christmas time. Okay, I'll give my son a ride. Why did he have his mother drive? Because he had a warrant out for his arrest. He didn't want to get pulled over driving. That's why he recruited his mother to drive. He never gets Shirley to admit this. The truth of the matter was she was terrified of her son. I could tell that. She wouldn't acknowledge that. So it's basically, we're going shopping now. Okay, get in the car. Okay, here's a card, use it. Now, that's not a defense. She knew what she was doing was wrong. She she knew she shouldn't have used the card. And then I said to her, well, and, you know, she said this publicly. I'm not betraying confidences. She went and bought underwear, bras and panties. Well, she basically went Christmas shopping with a card. And I said, well, okay, you bought, like, bras and underwear. And it's weird. Like, first she denied you buying the bar. She was embarrassed about the bras and underwear. She said, well... I figured I was at that point, I was in it. I was into it. It's kind of like you dip your toe in the water and then it's like embezzlers do. Steal 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there. And next thing you know, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then she's arrested and on trial for murder. Initially, she was charged with murder. She wasn't tried on murder. She wasn't indicted on murder. But yes, she was taken into custody on four counts of murder based on the fingerprints being in the gas can. They live in a duplex. Shirley and Shirley's mother live on one side. And Michael and his girlfriend, Joanna White, and their one-year-old child, Ronan, live on the other side of the duplex. So the police get a search warrant for the two adjacent sides of the duplex. And remember, there's more linking Shirley to the house than there is Michael to the house. And they kick in the door, and he has a gun. They kick, well, their version of the events is, yeah. At the same time, there's two sets of state police personnel going into two sides of the house. They have a no-knock warrant. They break down the doors, shoot a dog on Michael's side go up. And according to them, they go into a bedroom at the top of the stairs. They confront Michael King. It's a tiny bedroom. There's a doorway on one side of the bed, of the long end of the bed. And on the other end of the bed is Michael King, according to them, sitting on the edge of the bed. They can see his profile and he's holding a shotgun under his chin, at which point they tell him, drop the gun, don't do it. And according to them, one of the investigators, Charlie Daniels, reaches over, which is a crazy story, to try to grab him, gets up and turns, at which point they unload on him, his gun discharges, and then he falls on the down on the far end of the bed, face up. What we know is that... After this event, David Harding that night came in and cut from the fo- Joyce for, cut from the floorboard hole out from under where Michael King's chest was, and another eight-inch square out from under where Michael King's head was. When you line things up, you can you can you have points of reference like an outlet near where Michael King is lying. So why does all that matter? What we know is that there was a two bullet holes to the chest right here, right by the sternum from a Glock, which is Artie Daniels, the guy who says he reached around to the side of the bed. 
And years later, you went public to say you thought they assassinated Michael King. What I believe happened and what I think the evidence would show is that Michael King was down on the floor, on his back, under control. And they had him under control for about five minutes before they took him out. Why? Why would they do that? No death penalty in New York State. I mean, that's it's that simple. It was, this guy was a scumbag and didn't deserve to live. I don't think it's anything more sophisticated than that. Why do I say five minutes? Because Shirley was, you know, according to their story, there was just a barrage of gunfire. There was enough time for her to get, to have the cops come in, make her get dressed, get her out of the house. Their story was they came up, they conf- the whole thing ha- lasted about 30 seconds. What it appears was that they had him under control for a while, or at least not under, maybe not under control, but certainly the shooting of Michael King happened several minutes after they first went in. And what happened in all that time, I don't know. But he was on his back. There is an exit wound in his, what I believe is an exit wound in his, the back of his head. The story was that Michael King was shot by a shotgun. The guy who, Vredenberg, had a shotgun with double O buckshot and shot King in the head, in the back of the head. So none of this is lining up. If you are hit in the back of the head with double O buckshot, the front of your face is going to blow off. Is this a robbery, started out as a robbery, and then became a crime of opportunity with the teenager and the sexual assault? Or was it the reverse, do you think? If you can answer that question, you get the gold star. So he's organized. He brought a gun. Brought a gun in his backpack. But then he found a gas can at the house and figured out that this was a great way to cover up the crime. So he brought a weapon, but then he used something in the house. So it's like someone who thinks quickly on his feet, I guess. There are things that trouble me greatly about this crime. I'll tell you something I've not told very many people, but... So you're going to have to take my word from it for it because the other person who knows about it is dead. Back in the day when I worked at the paper, the way messages were kept was the little pink slips. So my boss, her name was Payne Peterson. She was the city editor of the paper. She was a slob like me. A couple months after the crime, after Shirley been arrested, she is cleaning out her desk and shows me pink slip. And it's a pink slip from December 7th. 1989. A few weeks before the murder. Phone call from Tony Harris, and he's been getting these terrible, harassing telephone calls and wants to talk to somebody about it. She shows it to me, and I say, oh, shh, I don't know. I wish I'd had the presence of mind to take the piece of paper from her or ask her for it. What I do know is that Tony Harris had been commenting to other people about these scary phone calls that he'd been getting in the weeks before the murder. And what was the context? Don't know. He was just saying, I'm getting some threatening phone calls. I'm a little bit nervous about it. A lot nervous about it. Scared about it. Interesting. And the police at the time of this murder investigation didn't know this? They wrote it off. It's hard to track down in 89, right? And and started talking to the employees one by one. One of the employees was a secretary by the name of, uh, she might be alive still. I better not give her name. At the Christmas party, the firm Christmas party, they went to a Chinese restaurant nearby They'd rented out the room, you know, banquet room. And this was a few days before, I think it was about the 21st, just a couple days before he died. 
Tony and two of his colleagues had gone to New Jersey in the days before for a sales pitch to sell some equipment or whatever they made. I don't even know what Dean Co. made to somebody in New Jersey. It was a successful visit. They secured a big contract. It should have been a cause for elation. I, I got all the lead sheets from the investigation. The woman was sitting near Harris with two other executives at this lunch and said, it's not your problem. I'm the one who has to worry about it. You're not the one who has to deal with it. It's me. He, he was stressed. He was acting odd. And it was strange to her because of the, they, they'd been happy. The company was struggling and he'd come back with this contract. He seemed so terrified to her that, that it bothered her. Now, maybe she just magnified it in her head after the event. But I give it some credence because it was given, it was not something that, she, that blew up in her mind later. It was the day the cops first come, they talk to her, and she says, yeah, he was acting oddly at this lunch and it troubled her. How does this tie in to Michael King? How do you entangle something like that? You don't. It's just these little bits and pieces. Now, now, you know, I was talking to you about conspiracy theories and now I'm, I'm giving you one. So, and maybe it's my mind going crazy. So there's that. And I told you earlier that there is a, something with a kernel of truth. The stories were specifically that Tony Harris had testified in a drug trial. Somebody gave me the name of somebody. They said, you want to look into this individual. I can't even remember his name now. I'd have to go into my files and pull it out. This guy you want to know about, he's got some involvement. The guy lived in Florida, in Bradenton, Florida. And this fellow was arrested in a cocaine bust in Bradenton, Florida in the summer of 1989, about six months before the murder. Large cocaine charge, felony charge, and then the charges just were dropped. He was not convicted. Hmm. He had no ties that I could see to Ithaca or Tompkins County. And I did a skip trace search on him to get all his addresses where he'd been living. Guy lives in Bradenton, 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 Bradenton. October of 1989, Slaterville, New York, which is in the town of Dryden. Lives in Dryden until about January and then goes back to Florida. I tried to contact the guy. I couldn't. And then I was going through another lead sheet. And another name surfaced of a woman. And the woman has a last name. of It's a family name around here that's known. It's unsavory folks. They have, tend to have bad reputations, get in trouble a lot. So I, I saw a name of somebody on a lead sheet with some hearsay attributed to this woman. So I called her. I said, somebody says, you know something about the Harris family. She said, I'm not talking to you. I've got family lives here. There's no way in hell I'm talking to you. Click, hangs up the phone. So another dead end. Another dead end, but these things sort of keep surfacing and you start, your mind runs away with you. So that, those are the bits and pieces that I know. Where do you stand with Michael King? I mean, is there any doubt that he did this? No. No doubt? No. Why? He gave his mom a credit card to go shopping. Sure, all the circumstantial evidence, he was using a credit card. Sure, you can say, well, yeah, but Shirley did too. Uh, Michael was, Michael got a ride near the crime scene by his girlfriend, Joanna White. So when she's on her way going into work, or actually the afternoon, just before she goes to work, he says, give me a ride, I'm going to work. When he says he's going to work, he doesn't have a job. And she takes that to me, I'm going to commit a burglary. She drives him to a point 
in Dryden that's about a couple miles from the Harris house. So you've got a witness who's dropped him off in the vicinity. Yeah, the girlfriend drops him off. He's got his backpack with him. She presumes that the backpack has a gun in it. He says he's going to work. I mean, all this stuff adds up. She was terrified, but she's got no reason to lie about this. Michael King had all the proceeds of the crime. Just all this stuff. It's a mountain of evidence that he was there. Before they linked Shirley King and Michael King to this, there were weeks going by. They were worried. It was weeks after the crime that they got the first leads tying Shirley King to it. It's like early February. So a month went by before they really started honing in the two of them. They went to the behavioral science unit. The FBI. And said, do a profile of who you think did this crime. Tell you, you read this thing. Fits them to a T. They really thought was that whoever did this was trying to impress somebody. Trying to impress an older person who had influence over them. Where my mind goes in all this is Michael King was... A pretty decent planner, I think. He's not the type of person who had not thought through to go out, commit this crime, and then not have a way home afterwards. I believe he was waiting for somebody to come and pick him up. And that person never arrived. And that's when things started really getting high haywire and got out of control. He realized that the ride wasn't coming. He was out there by himself. It was up to him to shut it down and get out of there. And he's there all night trying to come up with a plan, and that's what he does. Why take the risk of a sexual assault on a girl if the father could come home? I mean, it just seems like a ton of risk for someone. The sexual assault, they believe, happened after, probably after the other three family members were killed. That happened last in the sequence, or toward later in the sequence than earlier. I think... It was more than one person involved, not Shirley. I think it was Michael and somebody else. And then there are all these troubling little nits and gnats that suggest to me that there was trouble in Tony Harris's life, that he had antagonized somebody, that Michael King was probably set up to do this. Not probably. I think that's a theory. Michael King was set up to do this. The idea was given to Michael King, if you hit this house, you're going to find something of value in the house. And that was just a ruse. There was nothing of value in the house. He was fooled. And then by the time he realized he'd been fooled, and by the time he realized he wasn't getting a ride out of there, it was too late. That's what I believe. That's where I think the proof would go. So you think this was more focused on Tony Harris and whatever he was involved with, more so than whatever the state police were coming up with? I think that. I think that's the most viable theory, is there was something going on that the target of this was Mike, was Tony Harris. So this is not random then, is what you think? I believe it was not random. I believe the Harris family was. Tony Harris in particular was targeted. I think that's where the evidence would go, yes. If you have this theory that Tony... Harris was targeted. Why the hell was he calling a newspaper editor to talk about prank phone calls? I mean, that's a piece that doesn't really seem to fit. Why does he want to drag this out into the open? And if he's doing that, it would seem to suggest he doesn't know who's targeting. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know what's going on. So yeah, pieces don't necessarily fit together and seem illogical. Okay. So what happens with the state police? Well, they know it's a gamble. It's sort of like the, reminds you sort of the raid on bin Laden. They have these pieces that sort of say, well, we think it, it's a very tall man living in a compound in Pakistan. And they, you know, there's all these little bits and pieces there. Well, if they don't get Shirley and Michael tied to the house, they're in trouble. 
if they come in there and there's no evidence linking them to the crime, there's a big problem, uh, at a minimum, a lot of civil liability. It's sort of a gamble. You've got evidence linking Shirley to the house, but really nothing. Michael is smart enough that he's a recluse. He hadn't been out much. He hadn't been out much in the weeks after this occurred. And he picked up the shell casings. I mean, this guy really covered his tracks. Yeah. And according to the state police, by the way, one of the weapons that they found matched the ballistics of the twenty-two caliber. It was his weapon. So pretty conclusive evidence. Right. And what is Shirley King charged with exactly? Burglary, arson, forgery, hindering prosecution. She's looking at a maximum of, it's a complicated formula, but probably, I want to say, 15 to 30 years roughly in jail. During the trial, she is offered a plea. If she admits to having been in the Harris house, She'll get something like two and a third to seven. She won't take the deal. No, I wasn't there. She wouldn't do it. You're asking me to lie. I'm not going to do it. And part of this is based on they've got her fingerprint on the gas can. They've got her fingerprint on the can. They've got her using the cards. That's pretty good evidence that she was in the house. So, you know, during the the trial, David Harding is the star. He's a good-looking guy. I don't know if you've ever seen his photograph, but, uh, you know, women were crazy about David Harding. Uh, He comes in and he, you know, wearing a real nice suit and he's got the gas can there. And the gas can has been wiped clean. When When you lift prints off an object, you're supposed to preserve it. He said he wiped the can to make it clean. And the defense attorney jumped all over that and made a lot of noise about it. But people just sort of wrote it off. Basically, he testifies that the prints were one on the larger panel and the other on the other side on the larger panel. Think about how you pick up a cereal box to pour the cereal. This trial is being broadcast on live TV, which is, you know, 1980, 1990 is pretty remarkable on local television. And there's a closed circuit TV out in the hallway. And and the two senior investigators are watching this testimony. And McElligot says, I don't like how he's testifying about those prints. He said there were two prints on one side on a shorter panel. Now he's talking about them being on the opposite side of each other. I don't, I don't like this. Chandler says in response, I don't want to hear this because I interrogated Shirley. It's me and one other guy. And as they took her out of the room, after hours of interrogating her, we looked at each other and said, my God, if it weren't for those prints, I believe she wasn't in the house. So this conversation is going on while the trial is going on. Two bosses, and one of them literally, you know, it's like covering your ears, literally says, I don't want to hear what I am hearing because what Harding is saying about the prince doesn't make any sense. And the other one's saying, gee, we concluded if it weren't for the prince, she's innocent. So all, everything is pointing to reasonable doubt. The co- I mean, the cops are looking at it saying, ooh, we got a problem here. And they just sweep it under the rug. And she gets convicted. And she gets sentenced. And she goes to prison. And then David Harding applies for a job with the CIA and is being interrogated as part of that process and discloses that he had fabricated evidence in another case, not in Shirley's case, in another case. And at that point, the CIA says, eh, we're not going to hire this guy and turns the tape or at least the transcript of the interview over to the FBI where it sits on somebody's desk 
for about 16 months. He retires, and then somebody else finds the report and says, oh, we better notify the state police about this one. So there was some negligence there. She was in prison while the federal government had reason to believe that David Harding was not a credible witness and was committing criminal activity. So ultimately what happens? Her conviction is what they call vacated, which basically says, the court says, okay, let's hit the reset button here. David Harding's testimony is not credible. And ultimately she's offered the opportunity to plead guilty to a misdemeanor for using the credit card and she gets time served. Which she admits she did. Oh, she always admitted she did that. And she died a free woman just a few years ago. What are lessons learned from this story? The lessons are trust your instincts. Ask yourself, am I really listening to my instincts or am I listening to the cover story that my brain wants to tell me because it doesn't want me to be uncomfortable? There's some people who just, it probably still gives them bad feelings to go to that part of town. You know, at this point, all these years later, it's just sort of an old story, I think. On the next episode of Wicked Words. When Jenny went off to Hollywood, their only daughter, at 16 years old, moving to Hollywood, that was extremely difficult for them to deal with. Hollywood found her. And as it turned out, Jenny was not ready for it. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.